I'm Josh Block, sitting in this week for Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Josh. Before we start, I just want to apologize. My voice is a bit hoarse today. I guess that's life living with three boys who bring home germs to the house all the time. Ross, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm glad to see you have some tea in front of you, and we've got a lot to talk about, so we'll try to take it easy. But let's start with the day before the school committee meeting, this Tuesday. Mayor Wu and Superintendent Skipper made a big announcement concerning a number of BPS high schools and some moves they were making from one to another. So let's let's take those one at a time. The first part of the announcement dealt with moving the O'Brien campus to the West Roxbury Education Complex, which is currently vacant. So that's right, Josh. This seems to be a move really to help reimagine Madison Park High School. And in fact, right now, Madison Park High School and the O'Brien are side by side in two buildings. They're actually connected. The announcement basically said, look, we want to reimagine Madison Park, renovate the entire building, and potentially expand the school. And so that would require the O'Brien to move to a different location. And Josh, a number of years ago, I think it was in 2017, 2018, the district closed the West Roxbury complex. And I think there's a couple reasons why they closed West Roxbury complex. It was in need of significant repair. And also, it's pretty far away from where many of our students live. And so we basically, a lot of our students were taking multiple buses to get to that complex. So this announcement last uh, a couple of days ago stated that eventually the O'Brien would move to a renovated West Roxbury complex while giving the opportunity for Madison Park to be fully renovated and expanded in that location. And Ross, this issue of West Roxbury Education Complex's location came up a few times last night, and school committee member Lorena Lopera asked this question. How are we taking into account where majority of families live within our city? who are already engaging with BPS as we're making decisions for where high schools are being located. Because I imagine that we can't just say, this is a great piece of land, let's put a school there if we don't really have a desire from that immediate community or a need from that immediate community uh, for schools, uh, for students to participate. So Ross, Ms. LaPera is asking, how are we thinking about the geography of our students relative to the geography of these campuses that we're constructing? That's right, Josh. I mean, the, it, you know, the O'Brien and Madison Park are both really center of our city in the center of Roxbury. And they're really both really important institutions for our students and our families. And so the West Roxbury complex is definitely far away. Um, I can tell you that one of my kids plays soccer down at the fields, and it could often take well over an hour to get to that location one way, using public transportation or even longer using a car. And Josh, we should note that part of this announcement was not only that the O'Brien would move to West Roxbury, that in fact, they would have the right science labs and, and the right learning space that they, ha- they don't have currently. The O'Brien School of Math and Science doesn't have high quality science labs, doesn't have the high quality facilities that the students deserve. And so, you know, if it was the case that the O'Brien did move to West Roxbury and they renovated the building appropriately, it could give our students the facilities that they deserve and also expand the O'Brien. It was noted potentially the O'Brien could expand by over 400 seats, which is really important when there's so much demand for exam schools. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of ifs there, Ross, right? If the building can be renovated, if they can get the money, if they can get kids to the campus safely and efficiently, and if they can expand the to the extra 400 seats the way they want to. It's a lot of ifs, but the, the second half of that equation is if they can do all of that, it'll create a great, high-quality, accessible school with more opportunities for kids to take part in their programming. Correct. And, and Josh, you know, on the, on the side of Madison Park, there's been attempts at trying to figure out how to help make Madison Park have stronger programs. It is a very important institution in our city. Vocational and career education is so important to the students across uh, our city and across Massachusetts. And we often see students leaving our city to go to Votech programs outside of our city because we don't offer those programs at Madison Park. If we're able to renovate Madison Park and add programs, that would be really important to the Madison Park vision for the future. So, Ross, that's right. Let's talk about the other half of this equation, which is what happens to Madison Park when they're able to grow into this expanded space. Because what the superintendent and mayor talked about is essentially doubling enrollment of Madison Park. Yeah, so they're, you know, the, the superintendent and mayor announced that they potentially could expand the number of students at Madison Park for an additional 1,000 students. You know, we just heard last meeting, Josh, when, when we were discussing the Madison Park potential new admissions policy, which was actually not addressed last night, that over 30% of kids who go to Madison Park are administratively assigned. That means they don't make the choice to go to Madison Park. They're, they're basically administratively assigned to Madison Park. And so the question is, where will these 1,000 students come from? What other schools need to be closed as a result of adding 1,000 seats at Madison Park? And overall, like how and when will they have this space to make this happen? And school committee member Brandon Cardet Hernandez asked that question of the superintendent last night when she discussed this during her report. I think 33 or 35 percent of kids currently at the school were being administratively placed. And we were building an admissions policy that would screen out those students, which would require us to do major recruitment to backfill the seats with kids who wanted to make that choice. I guess I'm just curious, as we think about expanding, how does how do we sort of reconcile that and sort of where where's the thinking? So Ross, that's exactly right. At the same time, we're talking about administratively assigning kids who did not choose to go to the school. And we're talking about the overwhelming demand for this school such that we want to double its enrollment over the next however many years. And so that doesn't seem to jive. But I guess what the district is saying is when we make this investment, we give the extra space, we give the modern facilities. If you build it, people will come essentially. Is that right? I guess that is that was the announcement. And Josh, you know, th- this is the big question. I mean, both of these sound like positive possibilities about using a great new facility in West Roxbury for the expansion of the O'Brien and a brand new facility for Madison Park, both of them and an expansion of Madison Park offerings. Both those seem like real possibilities, although very short on details. And last night, we didn't get much clarity. There was a question also asked last night by Vice Chair O'Neill about why is this happening now? Why in front of the Green New Deal? Why wasn't it part of the Green New Deal? When we know we're not going to get the data from the Green New Deal until the end of the year, why did this have to happen now? Just help me out a little bit more about the thinking on the timing of this. Um, I know we have, you know, Green New Deal, bigger picture coming up. So why is that not included in this now? Just just kind of help help frame this a little bit better for me, please. And Ross, it's a good question because the timing of this does seem odd. Last meeting, we had individual votes on the mergers of the Shaw-Taylor and the Sumner-Philbrick. 
The day before yesterday's meeting, we have a bunch of announcements concerning other high schools. All the while, we're only in the first half of a year-long Green New Deal planning process that's supposed to outline a comprehensive vision for the district. And, and we should also say this announcement that came out on Tuesday about these schools did not have details about a timeline, did not have details about a budget. It was clear last night that the school committee members had not been briefed on this. We heard from school community members at these impacted schools that they didn't know about this. So it really felt like it, it came out of nowhere and it came while this Green New Deal planning process is still underway. There is a question about timing, Josh. Like, why now? Was it because of the exam school presentation that we'll get to later on in this meeting? Was it because of other issues that were happening that we're not aware of that would cause them to make such an announcement without real planning happening? What was clear is members of the communities who were impacted were left out of the conversation. The school committee members themselves were not part of any of these conversations. It seemed like a last minute announcement. Now, Josh, there was a couple other announcements in this. The superintendent and mayor also announced that the Margarita Muniz would add a seventh and eighth grade to their school. And they also announced that Charlestown High School will have a partnership with Bunker Hill Community College for early college for all of their students. I should mention, Josh, that this is not new. Bunker Hill and Charleston High School have had a partnership for many, many years. And in fact, Josh, they've always had trouble filling seats at Bunker Hill Community College through their early college program. So this was not a new announcement by any means, but it was sort of just thrown in there, I guess, as, a, as another announcement for the mayor and superintendent to make. So, Ross, this was a big collection of announcements made on Tuesday, the day before the meeting. It formed the meat of the superintendent's report at last night's meeting with a lot of questions from members about it. And then it moved on last night to public comment. Now, Ross, there's been a swell of, of comments from parents over recent meetings concerned about a number of emerging, growing issues in BPS. And that sort of felt like it came to a head last night. We had 61 public comments last night, the most we've had in a long time. And really five different topics were covered. So let's talk through those one at a time. The first one, and one that the superintendent actually headed off in her report, had to do with Boston Latin Academy. Right. So, Josh, we don't know much about this other than what we heard from the superintendent and a number of people in public comment. But there seems to be some conflict between some teachers at Boston Latin Academy, maybe some parents, and the head of school, Gavin Smith. And so last night, we heard the superintendent talk about that she's working with the Boston Teachers Union leadership to try to come up with a resolution to this conflict. And then we heard of, from a number of supporters who said he is a very good school leader and should be supported. And so I'm not sure of many more details than that, Josh, other than that there is some conflict and it was enough of a conflict that this had to come to light at school committee. Now, Ross, a second topic that was brought up often during last night's public comment period had to do with a petition around an ethnic studies curriculum. And this is something that we haven't heard about before, we haven't talked about before, but there were dozens of parents last night who came to advocate for this. Yeah, so just dozens of teachers and parents who, who were saying, hey, we want to ha protect ethnic studies. We want to make sure that we have a curriculum that is fully inclusive of all our students. And they're urging the school committee to sign on to a petition that Boston Public Schools wouldn't be threatened by other political motives to not teach kids about inclusivity and the true history of our country. And Josh, this was a strange one. It almost seems like, why wouldn't BPS get ahead of this and, and sign the petition prior to the, to the meeting? This is not, doesn't seem like a hard one, but it definitely took up about half of the almost three hours of public comment last night. 
Yeah, and actually, Ross, Chair Jerry Robinson brought this up at the end of the meeting in New Business. She said that they hadn't received a copy of this petition or any information about this before public comment, and they were surprised by this outpouring of comments. And so what she said during New Business is that she hopes to receive more written materials in the next couple of weeks to be able to review this and to be able to come back with an answer at the next meeting. Yeah, I mean, Josh, they were certainly well organized. We saw dozens of people come out with the same message, very much in support of ethnic studies and inclusive education. Now, Russ, another topic that came up during public comment a few times last night had to do with the Shaw-Taylor merger. And this has been a, a steady thread throughout public comment for months. But it was interesting last night because last meeting, the school committee voted to proceed with that merger. So this was not on the agenda last night, but still we heard from multiple parents. Yeah, so Josh, I was I was a little bit confused by this. You know, the, this vote has been taken. It was taken last week and approved that the Shaw-Taylor merger will happen. And then we heard from teachers and parents from the Shaw School last night concerned about the merger, saying, you're promising us a new building eventually, maybe in a decade, but what else do we get out of this merger? And so there was real concern around process and discontent on the merger and asking the school committee to not approve it. But it's already been approved, Josh. It's already moving forward. It seems like parents just still want to make clear that they are not happy with this process. They want to be more engaged. They want to be more involved. And and despite the fact that the vote has happened, it's important that they make their voice heard about what happens next. That's right. Now, Russ, the fourth topic, and one we talked about earlier in this podcast, is the O'Brien. We heard from the O'Brien school community about what's happening with, with that community. Right. So we heard from uh, primarily teachers at the O'Brien, and I think a couple of students saying they, none of them knew about this prior to the announcement uh, on Tuesday. And truly what makes this really difficult is that we are still in shock. We had no idea that this proposal was coming. It was announced to us in a very brief Zoom call on Monday, 24 hours before it became public. And students and their families were notified in the middle of the school day on Tuesday. Um, so you can imagine the chaos that, in, that you know, unfolded in classrooms as students read um, the, the email that their school was being uprooted. Um, and students were... Confused, and so are we, um, asking questions not just about what this means for us, but also about process. Why are they telling us like this? How long has this been going on? And the primary concern really is about location of the school. When will this happen? How will the students get to and from the school? How will it increase their commute time? And how will it affect extracurricular activities because of students needing to get leave the school right after school in order to get home or to other to other obligations? And so. This was a massive communication concern, I guess, that was that was being expressed by the students and, and the teachers at the school and really unanswered questions about the move of the O'Brien. That's right, Ross. And now the fifth and really final major topic that came up during public comment was exam schools. And that was also the topic that was the focus of the rest of last night's meeting. Now, as a reminder, in 2021, the summer of 2021, BPS adopted a new exam school policy. We just went through an exam school process with the results coming out a couple months ago, and there's been parents coming to testify at the last few school committee meetings about what they feel are unintended consequences of that process that ended up excluding their kids from exam schools that they feel they should have gotten into. So that's been the thread leading up to last night's meeting. Then last night before this exam school presentation, we heard from several more parents on this topic, including proposing solutions to what they think are the flaws in the process. The concern seems to rely upon three areas of concern. First, 10 points. The majority of schools get 10 bonus points in this process, where a handful of schools do not in BPS. And that seems to have major implications for schools who do not receive the 10 points. It's very difficult for those students to get in. 
It's also around the tiers, Josh. You know, there's eight tiers based on broadly on economic conditions in tiers and census tracts. It seems like if you live in tiers one through six, you almost get automatic admission into an exam school where if you live in tier seven and eight, less than 50% of students get in. And then lastly, Josh, the families and the students were advocating for the expansion of exam school seats, simply saying, why not? If, if, if there's only a few hundred kids who don't get into the exam schools, why not just expand the exam school seats? And Ross, there was a mother and daughter who testified together. So let's play that quote. Last month, I found out that I was not accepted into a Boston exam school. My composite score was over 95, but my family lives in a tier seven. And because I go to the Elliott, I'm not eligible for bonus points. It is hard to put into words how much I wanted to go to an exam school. My sister is a freshman at BLS, and in sixth grade, we had the same straight A's and about the same test scores. But she was admitted based on the old system. I know that the old system was unfair and inequitable. It shut out a lot of qualified kids who deserved an opportunity to to an attended exam school, but this new system is doing the same thing, shutting out a lot of qualified kids. So there's still a problem. There's still inequity. There's still unfairness. I was rejected because of where my parents chose to live. I was rejected because of the school my family got assigned when we entered the lottery for K-1. I have two questions for the school committee. Why does it make sense to shut out any qualified students for an exam school? Have you ever considered ex- expanding the number of seats at exam schools to meet all the needs of qualified students? BPS needs an immediate plan to remedy this situation. And I understand that changing this policy again is politically difficult, but expanding the number of seats at the exam schools to meet the needs of all qualified kids seems reasonable and achievable. And so all three of the issues you just brought up, the tiers, the 10 points, and expanding seats, those three issues were brought up again during the big report of the night, which was a report on the exam school admission process we just went through. And Ross, the goal of this report was to give an overview of the data from this round of exam school admissions and essentially answer the question of, did this new policy work as intended? Um, So can you talk about what we saw in that report? Sure, Josh. What we saw is broadly, students across all schools received invitations to one of the three exam schools. And that some schools, typically those schools who received the 10 points, or families who live in tiers one through six saw a much higher percentage of enrollment in exam schools than others. So what we saw, Josh, is some schools almost have 100% of students who apply to exam schools get into the exam schools. And other schools have less than 50% of students get in. So by and large, though, Josh, what BPS is saying is the exam school policy is working, that in fact, there is more diversity racial and economic diversity in the exam schools now than there was in the previous policy. That in fact, you know, there was a handful of schools were sending the majority of kids to the exam schools previously. And now pretty much all BPS schools have the opportunity to send kids to the exam schools. And that grading isn't that different. In fact, like students seem to be doing just as well as they were as the prior policy, although that data isn't complete because the grades aren't in yet for the end of the year. So, Ross, you just mentioned the tiers, and that was one of the big takeaways from last night's presentation. We saw that essentially everybody in tiers one through five was guaranteed entry into their exam school of choice. Then in tier six, it was about 70 percent. And then in tiers seven and eight, it was less than 50 percent. So what we saw last night is that the tier seemed to be the biggest factor in whether or not a student got into their exam school of choice. That's right, Josh. It, it, it really is about the tiers. And 
particularly if you live in, in tier, as you noted, tiers one through five or even one through six, you're almost guaranteed enrollment despite the points into an exam school. And Josh, let me just put that into light. There's a parent who testified last night who lives on one side of the street in Charlestown. And that side of the street is tier six. And literally the other side of the street is tier eight. That parent got into an exam school, got their first choice, whereas nobody from the other side of the street got into an exam school. It's hard to imagine why, because this, this, it's the same street, it's the same homes, but that's the, the, literally the difference. Or Josh, if you live in the Navy Yard in Charlestown, you're tier four, you're guaranteed admission into an exam school. Whereas if you live somewhere else, you may be in tier eight and it's not clear why, but you don't get in. You, it's very difficult to get into an exam school. Another example is in the South End, there's a home that's worth $4 million that's in tier four. It's just hard to imagine. You know, Some of these things are very difficult to understand where you may have a family who has subsidized housing in an apartment in tier eight, but there's nothing you can do about it for that, that family. There's a, it's almost impossible for that family to get into an exam school because of where they live. Ross, those are great examples in terms of the geographical issues with this. We also saw this play out in the data that was presented last night. So BPS was asked, what was the lowest composite score of a person who got into an exam school? And the answer was 64.8 out of 100. So there was a student with a, 60, a score of 64.8 out of 100 who was able to get into an exam school. Then at the same time, they were asked, what was the highest score that didn't get into an exam school. And we heard that there was at least one person with a perfect score, a 100 out of 100, who did not get into an exam school. Now, what that means is that a person, even with a lower score, if they're in a lower tier, is able to get into an exam school before a person with a perfect score in a higher tier. That's right, Josh. And, and it was very clear. It's very clear that the district is okay with that policy. You know, they didn't apologize. They didn't say it was incorrect. They said, yes, that is that is the case. So Ross, that's the tiers, one of three topics that were brought up during public comment and again during this report, the others being the 10 bonus points and the question about why we can't add more seats. Now, school committee member Brandon Cardet Hernandez asked about both of these points. So first he asks about the 10 bonus points. And here's what he says. I don't know. It's the sort of I've heard many people sort of say, like, why is it not aligned to an individual? Why is it aligned to a school? I'd rather yeah. see folks who are economically disadvantaged get that 10 points than just someone who went to school with higher concentrations of need. So Ross, you'll recall when this policy was originally voted on two years ago, there was a proposal made by the exam school task force. And then two weeks later, then Superintendent Caselius came in with a slightly amended proposal. And the change she made was she lowered the threshold for these 10 points to any school with 40% or more students living in poverty. Now, that was a lower threshold than what the exam school task force had proposed. They had proposed a 50% threshold. Changing that number, of course, changes the math, changes the simulations. But the school committee voted to approve this new policy without seeing those new simulations. And now that's what's playing out here. Mr. Cardet Hernandez is saying those 10 points made a big difference here. That math made a big difference. We're grouping these schools as one entity. So even wealthier students who go to these lower income schools are getting the 10 bonus points over lower income students who go to wealthier schools. 
And why can't we address these 10 points on an individual basis instead of a school basis? That, that's right, Josh. So the district then responded that they can't assign, that it would be too problematic to assign points to individual students rather than school writ large because students would have to complete applications. I just want to be clear on this, Josh. You can use data, SNAP, really it's SNAP eligibility data that the state has, that the state uses already to give a, the percentage of students living at poverty in each school. So every school has a percentage of students living in poverty. Those data come from the state and they come from the eligibility of students who are enrolled in SNAP and other assistance programs. So the data is available. It is possible. It is possible to assign, give students, individual students points so that if you're a student who is low income at a school that doesn't receive the points, you can get the points. And in fact, if you're a school where students, there's over 40% of students who are low income, you can give each point, the point to each of those students rather than also giving them to students who are living in high income or upper income. So it is absolutely a, a doable, Josh. But last night, the district was clear in saying that they didn't think they were capable of pulling that off. So there's an issue with the tiers, but the district is saying, this is our plan. We're sticking with it. There's an issue with the 10 points, but again, the district is saying, this is our plan. It's working as intended. We're sticking with it. So then Mr. Cadet Hernandez asks about this third question. If we're not going to change the actual policy, can we add more seats? Can we make it so that under this policy, every student who wants a seat at an exam school can get one? It feels like people are just like, give us more seats. And I think we'd solve a lot of noise. We've seen the applicant pool decrease. It looks like almost in half over the last few years the meetings might even be shorter if we were just creating more seats across the city. Now, Ross, it's important to note the data here because Mr. Credit Hernandez asked at the last meeting how many students wanted a seat in an exam school, were eligible for a seat in an exam school, but didn't get one. At the time, he was told, we don't have that data. We'll get it for you next meeting. We did see that data last night. Now, that number is there were 1,355 students who were eligible for an exam school seat. And there were 1,000 who received a seat. So there were 355 students who did not receive a seat. Ross, that's a small number. It seems like that's a number of students that the district should be able to account for. Josh, this is, this is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we can't, that we're having this extent of a conversation when we have 355 kids who did not get an exam school seat who are eligible for a seat. If the district thinks every student with a B or higher should receive a seat in exam school, then figure out how to expand exam school seats by 355. It is, that, it is that simple. Then we can move the conversation to all the other schools that we need to be focused on to ensure that our students are ready for college and careers. It, it's just ridiculous, Josh, that the district can't figure out how to expand 355 seats. We just, we just made an announcement two days ago that we're gonna completely move a school to West Roxbury, expand that school by 400 seats, and build a new Madison Park. You're telling me that we can't figure out how to make an announcement that we're going to find 355 seats in many of the half-empty buildings we have around our city. It's absolutely ridiculous that the school, that the superintendent, her team, and the school committee can't figure out how to expand exam schools by 355. So, Russ, it all comes back to this. Members of the public and members of the school committee flagged some concerns with the policy. The policy is not changing. They flagged a potential solution to add more seats. It sounds like that's not feasible or at least not feasible in the near future. And so it came back to why can't we change this policy? Why can't we update this policy? 
And one thing the superintendent has reiterated, and that was in the presentation last night, is that in the original policy from 2021, they agreed that they would not change the policy for five years. But Mr. Credit Hernandez questioned that last night. I'm hearing this sort of like, we're not going to revisit the policy for five years, sort of like threaded throughout, which I also don't agree with. Like, we revisit things all the time. And like, it's not like Bible, like we made up the policy. Yeah, Josh, I mean, this is, I, I think what, what's happening here is there, there's not political will to take on changing this policy, even though our politicians, our, our city leaders and leaders of our school district have agreed that there are absolute flaws to this policy but they refuse to fix them. And it just seems like this meeting, Josh, is going to be an annual meeting where the superintendent and her team and the school committee hold their breath till everyone's done complaining about it. And then they just move on without changing anything. And they're really hiding behind some made up idea that this is to be revisited in five years. But we could be, it, it, it seems very clear out of last night's meeting that there's not a willingness to address the problems with the policy. There's not a willingness to expand exam school seats. There's an overall unwillingness and, and care to want to figure out how to serve all kids in BPS. That was clear last night. And that's exactly the point, Ross. This shouldn't be about three exam schools. It should be about how do we serve all kids in all BPS high schools. And Chair Robinson came back to that point at the end. She concluded this meeting by making what seemed like two somewhat contradictory points. So first, she says, there are a lot of other great high schools in BPS, and it's a marketing issue. The issue is that we're not doing a good enough job telling people who don't get into an exam schools about all these other great options for them. You know, it's hard to hear that people only think we have three worthy high schools. We're not promoting that. <laughs> You know, and so, yes, these are important, but so is everything else. We've got an arts academy. We've got new mission. We have other schools that are doing extraordinarily well. We're not looking at their outcomes. We're not helping people to see these are just as good and are preparing our students to do marvelous things. So, Ross, after she says that, she says something slightly different, which is, she sort of concedes that these schools with higher levels of poverty, these schools that got the 10 bonus points, are underperforming their peers. That the reason for these 10 bonus points is because students at those schools don't get the same resources and the same opportunities as students at the schools that are not getting the 10 points. You know, we say every child gets everything they need in every school, but then we turn around and say, oops, but not here, so we're going to give you 10 points. So Ross, at the same time, she seems to be saying... We have so many great schools. We need to tell people about these great schools. And all of these schools that are getting these 10 points need these 10 points because they're not up to par. We'll post some data that shows proficiency rates uh, for our schools on MCAS, for example. And if you look at those proficiency rates, they, they tell a different story. They don't tell a story of all these jewels that are in our school district that nobody's paying attention to. But in fact, they tell a story about really concerning proficiency rates, particularly for our black and brown students in our city. And until that's addressed, that, that is, that is the, the issue that needs to be addressed in this city. And Josh, it is a little bit exhausting hearing this ending by Chair Robinson. And she's done this at a few different meetings where she says, now it's time for us to focus our attention on all schools. But in fact, Josh, the only reason we're talking about the other schools 
is because of the exam school policy. It, it is very concerning, Josh. We have a massive problem in our school system uh, around the our preparedness of our students. And until something dramatic changes, I, I don't see that that changing in the future. And that's what happened last night at school committee. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your student, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.